So Toots, I mm. have seen the most incredible thing that I think I mentioned on the pod that I might watch. And finally, now that I'm a lady of leisure, I've been able to do it. You should see her leisure wear right now. <laughs> Seriously, that active wear was bought in what, 1999 or something? <laughs> Just yeah, like, it's pretty wow. dodgy. It's really lost its twang, mate. The shirt's only just fitting me, actually, and it's very <laughs> faded. But anyway, um, it's part of part of the new me. Still beautiful to me, love. <laughs> so do you remember I was banging on about the National Theatre in London? You can get a thing <gasps> called National Theatre at Home right? and subscribe to that, or you can just watch individual plays. And I had been talking about, remember over summer I read Frankenstein? Yeah. And I said... I know where this is going. <laughs> and I said, oh, someone's told me about this incredible production that the National Theatre did where it's Benedict... Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller and they alternate, I think it was week on, week off, it might have been night on, night off, the roles of the creature and Frankenstein. I've now watched both of those productions. <laughs> it was... So you watched one, like you watched... I watched one one day and, and one the next And which one did you watch first? Okay, I watched Benedict Cumberbatch as the creature I just, first. I, I could listen to people saying Benedict Cumberbatch forever. It's just the most satisfying name to say and to hear. Sorry. I saw a little clip of him the other day because, of course, I've just been in a terrible Benedict Cumberbatch rabbit hole. In fact, I want to read that. That's your title of your sex tape, Benedict Cumberbatch rabbit hole. I've been watching him. He's an absolutely brilliant impersonator of people. If you Google Benedict Cumberbatch impersonations, there's just endless fantastic oh, ones. Anyway, he, say that to a person on long service leave. There was this classic bit where he's, st- I think it might have been Saturday night, and he's like, you know, my mother and I used to have very unusual names for each other. I used to call her Pookie and she called me Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's sadistic but with a tweak of just pure genius, isn't it? Anyway, it was... So I watched the Cumberbatch as the creature first. If anyone's listening to this and they're going to do it, I'd recommend doing it the other way around. Ooh, well, I am listening to this and reckoning on okay. doing it. So. It's a brilliant production and it's, you know how gothic stuff has that just sort of creeping sense of dread mm-hmm. through it and just, ugh. So they just, the way it's staged God, they do it well. They've got like all of these dimly lit kind of light bulbs hanging over the stage, like everything about it. It's not obviously going for horror, but it just gives you this Mm. creeped out feeling. And I think if you were in the actual theatre, it must have been off the charts. So Cumberbatch, when he's the creature... I've just never seen anything like it. He 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 did not seem like a human being. He, He actually seemed like something less than human. But at the same time... He also seemed incredibly vulnerable and like tugged at your heartstrings and you felt for him, you felt for him as a living creature. It was gobsmacking. And then he had all of these kind of unusual ticks that were, that added to the non-human kind of vibe that he kept very consistently throughout the entire thing. And he reminded me a bit, you know, you talked about Lyndon, what's his name, Lyndon, um, who's... Oh, who's in... Lyndon Watts. Yeah, in mm. um, Hamilton. And mm. you, you described him as having a fluid quality, like he's just kind of very fluid. Man is confirmed a liquid. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Cumberbatch has got that quality. He's like a liquid. He's just like kind of, he scampers up things and he's sort of, at one point he sort of jumps out of this bed and it's like he's just like Quicksilver or something. It's His physicality is really something. And because he's quite an unusual looking bloke, that adds to this kind of weirdness of him being not quite 
human. And then him and, and so Johnny Lee Miller's Frankenstein, it, they they just worked together absolutely brilliantly. And so that was, I was just marvelling watching Cumberbatch. And so then when I, and then I was very curious to see it around the mm. other way. And the other way, Johnny Lee Miller was also excellent and Cumberbatch was also very good as Frankenstein. But Cumberbatch as the creature was so next level that it was like the next production, the other version couldn't quite match it. But I felt like if I'd seen it the other way around, it would I would have, have been thought, a building of delight. Yeah, and I would have felt like the other way. If I'd seen Johnny Lee Miller as the creature first, I think I, I would have thought, wow, that was outstanding. But because Cumberbatch was just like, it has to be one of the greatest stage performances Wow, ever. okay. All and right. they, they do an amazing job. I remember job. when you talked about it before and it went on the podcast and you were like, no, I'm not really sure um, if, if it's even possible to watch this. And then like... 4,000 chatters then sent links. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which was great. Yeah. So they also, they do the most incredible job shooting it. I don't know how they do it. Actually, it reminds me a bit of when we, we've done a few times with our shows for Chat Town, a live stream, mm. and you and I have said after the show, like, how are they filming that? Because they've got multiple cameras and I've just never seen one I of them. I have never seen yeah. one, of, one of the cameras there. And yet when you watch the live stream back, they've got close-ups and it's really... It's really good quality. It's bizarre. Yeah. They, they must be, like, they're incredible professionals. They yeah. They but... must be able to... They must have powerful Zoom capabilities yeah, or something. Yeah, they're across the road, actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But anyway, but so it's like that. And they, they clearly obviously have watched performances of it because they, they're on close shots and wide shots at yeah. exactly the right time. And sometimes they actually have a camera that's above the stage, so you get a really interesting perspective looking down. So I, I found it, I think it's really incredible. And so then I went, the Dendi Theatre does National Theatre at Home on the big screen, yeah. so you can go actually to the cinema and watch something. Oh. Right. So after loving watching the two Frankensteins at home, I went to the Dendi and I watched, I would have called it prima facie, but mm. Emily Matlis from the BBC was introducing the performance and she said prima facie. Oh. Yeah. So, and I just wow. assumed the BBC would know. Let's so, call the whole thing off. Yeah. So I thought, have I been saying it wrong all these years? I have absolutely no information about that because I absolutely would have said prima facie. Yeah. Well, prima facie. Prima, 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 prima facie. Prima facie. I suppose maybe that's the more correct Latin pronunciation, keeping in mind that Latin is a dead and unspoken language, so oh, who cares? Yeah, and I, was, I guess, like, I don't know, is Latin closer to Italian than Latin is to English? I don't know. Because in Italian prima it facie. would be prima facie. That's something you'd order at Spaghetti Tree. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a whole so, lot of Parmesan on my prima facie, please. So oh, fun, this is delicious. Funnily enough, my friend in London, Better after I watched one. Frankenstein, hello, Claire, she listened to the pod, Claire said to me, hey, if you ever get a chance, see prima facie, because the Jodie Comer, I think, is the name of the woman right. who was the lead in it, Claire said it was considered one of the all-time greatest things that the National Theatre's done. Her performance was, you know, off the charts. The very next week I happened to looking up something on the Dendi and I see, oh, my God, they're playing that production. So I went to have a look at that and, again, incredibly well done. The only thing that really annoyed me was, um, and I raised it with Claire, as if she's like the representative of the National <laughs> Theatre just because she's English. I said, God, Claire, all I want to see is the production. And they start off with like a... Emily Matlis having a chat with the playwright and the actor and the director. And confusing and, you about pronunciation. And I'm just like, I just don't want to know. want to see the bloody film. Yeah, I just want to see the play, particularly before you're doing the analysis of, of it. I would just like to see the play. Anyway, Claire said, oh, no, that's a thing, doll. They do it. <laughs> that's what they do now. Anyway, so finally, like Along with 40 correctly minutes after pronouncing arrived, things, they also educate themselves before <laughs> seeing the show. Yeah. Anyway, it's a one-woman show and how she did it, I have 
No idea. Now, you've seen the Australian production of this, haven't I you? I have. Yeah. So the playwright is local Susie in the Westie. Yes, Susie Miller. And it premiered, I think, years back at the Griffin Theatre, which is this fabulous and tiny theatre in Sydney, and then it had a return season and that role was performed by Sheridan Harbridge, who is Tessa, who's a criminal lawyer, who I think often defends people who are accused of sexual assault, and then she finds herself as, like, she experiences a sexual assault and then has to consider all the things that um, sexual assault victims have to consider when they interact with the legal system. Yeah. Um, it's it's really – it goes through all of the complexities of those issues really well and she has to kind of make this transition from a fairly brash defence lawyer who believes in all of the tenets of justice and then she's – she has the experience of, well, what, what's it like instead of being the person who's kind of running that system or mm. part of running that system as somebody in that system yep. and the powerlessness that you feel when you become part of the system and just the difficulty of truth, like getting to the actual truth of something where there are only two people present and both people have a different take on yep. the events. So um, it was a really powerful piece of work and she was, I, like I was just watching her going, oh, how do you do this? Eight times a week. It was, you know, like when you see Hannah Gadsby doing Nanette. It's right. like, oh, how do you do this eight times a week? The level of emotion is so extreme. Yeah, you get to the feeling at the end of the play where, and I've seen the Australian version and I haven't seen the um, the, the filmed version of the British production, but I remember seeing it in the theatre and just thinking you must have absolutely nothing left at the end of oh. that performance because it doesn't have like the full technical demands of the one-woman show. Erin Jane Norville. Yes. Yeah. But the emotional range required yep. to be this person in all these different guises is yep. quite, quite extraordinary. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking that because part of the difficulty with the picture of Dorian Gray had to have been the blocking and hitting, right, yeah. coordinating, you've got to be here at this point and then this video is going to play and you've got to stand in front of this iPhone and talk into that at the same yeah. time that this is happening. So there's a lot of, in that production, there's a ton of logistics. Mm. This production still had logistics, just probably not quite as many as that. You're not had. at a dinner party with eight versions of yourself <laughs> having to interact with all of them, for instance. Oh, yeah, where some of them have got However. their dialogue pre-recorded and if you miss your beat, it's... Yeah. Yeah, so uh, anyway, it was great. But keep an eye out for... You can either, you know, as explained, watch, watch National Theatre at Home or you can go to the Dendi and they have... Like there's a production coming up, I forget what the play is, but it's something with Ray Fiennes in it that I thought, oh, that looks pretty good. But they, they mine... The Dendi mines the archives, so yeah. some of these things. Yeah, So if you if you see Frankenstein, in fact, Dendi... If the people at the Dendi listen to this, can you play it? Because I'd like to go see it in, on the big screen. <laughs> Just for me, please. Shout out. We'll organise a flood of people to show Let's up. see how powerful we really are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, actually, I saw a, for the second time yesterday a little documentary made, produ produced by the Addison Road Community Centre, which is just around the corner from me and where I spent a bit of time during the lockdown. And it's a documentary called Die or Die Trying. And it's this extraordinary true story of 15 young Afghan girls who were stuck in a house in Kabul when the Taliban took over control of Kabul, which is just over a year ago now. And these girls who were all at uni started getting calls from their parents um, on campus saying, listen, the Taliban are completely 
flooding the area. You've got to get out of there, find somewhere safe. And one of them, a girl called Marva, lived right near the uni. So they all went to her house and just hid there. (sighs) And they were there for two weeks just absolutely terrified. Taliban were knocking on the door, had worked out that there were a big group of girls. Uh. And so at one point the Taliban took Marwa's dad away and they were just freaking out. And one of them knew somebody in the Afghan community in Sydney and that woman started phoning around desperately trying to get people to fill out visa applications or find a way to try and evacuate these girls in that tiny window, you remember, when you could yeah. actually get people out of Kabul. And it's like it's an amazing story of just sort of community links and whatever because they eventually contacted Rosanna Barbero from the Addison Road Community Centre who then kind of worded up Craig Foster who happened to know someone who knew um, that there were some visas left in this emergency category within a couple of days. And then, you know, another of the refugees that spends time at Addison Road knew Farsi and so could, like, put together all these forms mm. and stuff. Anyway, they ended up being evacuated from this house, these girls by themselves without their parents, and had to sneak out to Pakistan across the border and then come to Sydney where they arrive with, like, Nothing, absolutely, Mm. and not their parents or anything. Anyway, in the last year, they've all settled in Sydney, these tiny girls. Anyway, they're incredible young women. I've met a few of them and just watching – you can actually just go and watch this doco. It's called Die or Die Trying and it's just on YouTube. And where are they living? Uh, All over, yeah. So, like – Billeted to families or how? No, sharing house, sharing right. house, um, yeah. some of them. One of them who actually came to stay at my house over last Christmas has won a scholarship to a school in Sydney and so she's doing year 11, she's 21. But, yeah, but they're incredible chicks. Like they are just remarkable, have travelled completely by themselves and yet are just full of energy and determination to make the most of this opportunity that they've mm. um, been given. Anyway, it's 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 a very – I found it – I've watched it before, but it's very affecting and it's an incredible story. Mm. Mm. We had a story on 7.30 quite a few years ago now where it was two young Afghan boys who shared a flat together and they were going to school, refugees. Yep. And yep. Um, oh, I just, it just always stuck with me because they were lovely boys and just – their life compared to, you know, a kid that was just living with their mum and dad, it was yep. off the charts. Yep. Like they had to have part-time jobs and they were, you know, working their bums off to study to try to get it ahead to get themselves, you know, into university and they you know, had to cook all their own meals, wash all their own clothes, you know, all of that kind of stuff. They were like 16 or 17. And I remember this sequence where they were in, you know, like on the weekend, just looking at the opera house and they were just so kind of even though I felt like wow they've just they've got it so tough those boys they've got to work so hard they were just so happy right well refugees make pretty good citizens they do um wow okay that sounds really incredible yeah but like generally over my period of leave I've been well moving house so that has been you know <laughs> been not exactly a holiday experience but um I have been making an effort to watch some lightweight television. Great. Good. <laughs> so, Because normally I feel bad about watching lightweight television because oh. I think, you know, I should be watching something improving or something oh. that, you know, I know that I this is that. not your no. – I mean, <laughs> but then, you know, in your daily life, 
as was, you spent your time making quality well, television. I was going to say, so, funnily enough, I've gone the opposite direction. Yeah. Because I think I don't need When you were making 7.30, yeah. you used to just watch trash. trash. Yeah. And now I'm on leave and, and I'm like, oh, I'd like to watch National just... Theatre at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's true. Whereas I've yeah. gone lowbrow. Yeah. So I'll rattle through a couple. Okay. I watched the whole series of Uncoupled. Okay, what's this? Well, so this is this is it's sort of billed as the kind of gay equivalent to Sex and the City. That's oh. why I thought you might be interested because no, you like Sex and the City. Yeah. So the storyline is that the principal character, who is played by Neil Patrick Harris, and you know I love Neil Patrick Harris, so that's um, yeah, I love you know, him too. I mean, a grown-up Doogie Howser, what's not to love? And so in this series, he's been in this long-term relationship with this guy. They're massively in love. He's planned a surprise 50th birthday party for him. And just as he said to his partner, look, I've just, I've organised this quiet dinner at this restaurant, but actually there's like a hundred friends and, you know, big inflatable 50 and, you know, all sorts. Oh, God. So they like meet I know out, where this is going. Right. So they <laughs> yeah. meet outside the restaurant and everybody's crouching inside. And the partner says to Neil Patrick Harris, listen, I've packed up my stuff and I'm moving out. <laughs> <laughs> and then they kind of go in and there's this big surprise, just like the worst. So it starts with this epic dumping. And then essentially the series is about him trying to like get over the lover and to kind of adapt to single life. And it's it's kind of, you know, entertaining popcorn. The thing that I find interesting about it is it's a kind of, I guess, groundbreaking production in that it is a standard, lightweight, rom-com kind of New York City romp that is entirely about um, gay people, which I guess 20 years ago you would never, like would have been a much more niche sort of production, but it's so unremarkable yeah. that it's that it's a real, like I think it's just a real signpost at the times. I mean, it's totally unrealistic in that they're all incredibly rich He's a real estate agent and his friends are like art dealers and whatever. But it's a full, like there's a little cabal that is like the Sex and the City cabal of girls. The, the character is identifiably like, you know, which one's the Samantha, you know, which oh, one's right. the whatever. And um, and even the theme music is almost identical to the Sex wow. and the City. Like the sting is like, mm. and you get all the same stuff, like sort of Manhattan real estate porn. You get, you know beautiful restaurants and, you know, people having hissy fits and classy bars and all that sort of stuff. So it's like exactly the same but with gay men. Wow. Okay. Mm. Um, what's it on? Uh, I'm going to say Netflix. I think it might be on Netflix. Right. But um, our, our show notes will confirm. Okay. So anyway, I mean, I I, I wouldn't I, – I, I noticed that there's a bit of a mixed reaction to it. Like it's been a bit critically savaged. Oh, um, right. Just I think for being a bit lightweight. But I mean – that's what it's supposed to be. Um, but it's been quite popular with audiences. So the okay. big question is, will it be renewed for a second season? Yeah, And as right. I was, like, just tinkering about doing a little bit of light, you know, what's people been thinking of this? There was this I, – I got an article that said, the fate – of the rehearsal, no, the fate of uh, uncoupled. uncoupled has been decided. I went, oh, click on that. And it was like literally this article saying the fate has not been decided. <laughs> like, wow, <laughs> just shocking clickbait. Anyway. So um, you having that uh, slip of the tongue, the rehearsal. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's what I was like mentally jumping to because that is something absolutely spectacular. Okay, so to give some context, I was at Crab's house one night and we were with another friend of ours, Chris and Jeremy, and 
you and Chris had both seen this show called The Rehearsal yep. and you asked me had I seen it and I said um, no and then you both talked about it so much and it sounded so intriguing that when I left your place at 9pm as I do, I immediately rang another friend who I thought would have binge or whatever platform that it was that I didn't have and I said, are you home? Can I come around right now and watch your binge and watch a show called The Rehearsal and I left your place and went to someone else's place at quarter past nine and watched Listeners, episode one of let The Let the record show. <laughs> I did not know, nor did Jeremy, nor did Chris, that when you said, oh, I've really got to go, um, <laughs> and you just ghosted, and you ghosted in such a ghosty oh, no, sales ghost. way. I said goodbye. You were extremely abrupt, like, and to the point where I think Chris said, like, is she all right? Like, what? I'm like, mm, that, is, that, that is what she do. <laughs> she just leaves. But even I, the next morning, because I texted you and said... <laughs> Do you want to come around and watch that rehearsal show? Because you seem so interested. I was like, Done. And Sales is like, tick. tick. I've already binge booty called my friend and like gone. On. Like, what did this friend think where you just like turn up at quarter past nine out of character? Oh, he's anyway, used to how I roll. And just like, oh, I can't talk. Like, <laughs> watch your binge so pity the poor blokes in my life who get like late night phone calls and it's like no seriously I literally just want to use your television and then I'm I'm leaving like hello is that a relationship (laughs) um so okay so I've very much enjoyed that pattern of behavior uh and it's it was even for you quite a sort of grandiloquent piece of social (laughs) abnormality however it's kind of in keeping because this show the rehearsal is it's sort of unlike any other television show I've ever seen before. It is ambitious, it is complicated, and it is absolutely glorious in its concept. Can I just say what yes, the concept is? Yeah. So it's a show made, it's a reality show made by the comedian Nathan Fielder. And I wasn't familiar with Nathan Fielder, but my 15-year-old daughter super is. And he made a series called Nathan For You where he plays practical jokes on people and it's for real. So I haven't watched that. I know some people will be like, oh, is it, is it too mean? Whatever. Anyway, he is a planner. He's like gets socially anxious about how things in his life are going to go, like certain interactions or certain you know things that he needs to get done. So in order to ease his sense of anxiety about that, he likes to rehearse these things. And in this show, he finds people who are worried about doing something in their life, like a particular conversation or a um, interaction, and he helps them to rehearse the whole thing incredibly intricately. So you hear that and you think, okay, right. So, you know, he goes to the length of, so in the first episode, there's this guy who's worried about telling his pub trivia group that he does not, as he claimed 11 years ago when they first started doing pub trivia together, have a master's. He told them he had a master's because he felt a bit inferior and he didn't and now he feels bad about lying to them. And there's they one keep friend suggesting jobs for him. like, oh, yeah. hey, you've got a master's. Just, you know, why yeah. don't you apply for this job? And he's feeling like incredibly bad and he wants to tell them and particularly he's nervous about telling this one woman who's on the team who he feels might take it absolutely the wrong way. And so the rehearsal, I mean, Nathan Fielder finds him by advertising, basically. And even the first interaction that Fielder has with this guy, he reveals he has completely rehearsed in a set 
built to resemble the guy's apartment. This is just the first interaction between the guy and Nathan Fielder. Nathan Fielder has organised a cable guy to go in and call in and check something and basically assemble a floor plan of this guy's apartment. And he builds a replica of the apartment and hires an actor that looks a bit like the guy just to rehearse this initial conversation that Fielder has with this trivia guy. I mean... It's it's clear both Fielder and the guy who's in it have major difficulties with social interaction and real anxiety around that in, in every single yep. kind of social interaction, let alone one as fraught as admitting to a yep. friend that you've lied about something. Yeah, it was. it's a very – I found it intriguing. Have you watched more than that first episode? Yeah. I've, oh, watched, right. I've watched another one. and. I should just say that they build a completely faithful set of the bar where the um, pub trivia happens. So this guy then rehearses with an actor playing this woman what he's going to say and even like where they're going to sit. It's a completely perfect replica of the bar. And Nathan Field was keeping a spreadsheet of all the different ways the woman might possibly react. And so what happens is he go. there's a there's one bit where in the rehearsal the guy, the trivia guy goes to tell her the um, story and then a waiter comes up and, and his drink's empty. He goes, well, can I refill your drink? And so he gets interrupted. And so then Nathan Fielder stops the rehearsal and says, you need to make sure you have a full glass when you start to tell the story so you don't get interrupted. I'm putting that on the notes so on the we're gaming it so that we know that it, it, it's gobsmacking. And even that level of preparation, like just building the set of the trivia, is not even close to the most striking moment, right? Like that's not even close to how crazy over-prepped this thing is. I'm thinking of the walk, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's... The great thing about it is it's completely bonkers television. It is. In the best possible way. But you can only imagine um, also the way that it builds your anticipation for because they film, of yeah. course, the real yeah. interaction when he has to do it. And so by the time you get to that, you're just like, <gasps> you're on the edge of your seat. Like, you know, how's it going to go? Like, it was a very compelling piece of work. But I just thought also interesting about exposing the mechanics of how difficult social interactions are for right. some people. Yeah, and I think... The other thing about the show that I really love is this, this, I mean, it's essentially about neurodiversity, right? And But there is something so powerful about the way he narrates his own technique for um, dealing with anxiety about social interactions. I mean, sure, he's got a successful comedy career, lots of resources he can afford to build a goddamn bar, but, like, it's great pacing out of what it's like to inhabit that mental landscape. Well, also because all of us inhabit that mental yeah. landscape because we all get anxious about having to tell people. Yeah. Like, I mean, that scenario, having to tell people who are your friends that you've lied about something for 11 years, yeah. you can see why that would make someone really anxious. Yeah, like those Walkley Awards you've lied about. <laughs> so anyway, it's um, I'm looking forward to, but see, because I don't have... I think it's on binge. Well, you'll have to come and booty call me, mate. I got binge. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, All right, I will. I think so. The second episode is where there's this woman who she's like in her early 40s, I think, and she kind of really wants to have a baby, but she doesn't know if she wants to have a baby. And she's kind of like, oh, you know, it's a big decision and she's by herself. And so Nathan Fielder hires a selection of infant and child actors and sets her up in this house and 
basically lets her look after a baby at all the stages of development. And does she just run screaming in horror and decide she's very perfectly happy? Well, babe? that would be telling. But it's, <laughs> I mean, the ambition and scope is... Full on. If anything, like even more full on than the, the first one. So anyway, so, hard recommend that series. It's just... Um, so before we run out of time, can I tell you about one other thing I watched, which is Back into the Highbrow, the new Highbrow League, oh, yes. which was on Amazon Prime. <laughs> the reason I watched it was 100% because of the two people who were cast in it, yep. Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and it was called The Song of Lunch and it was just about, it was like a BBC thing. It went for about 55 minutes and it was based on a poem by a guy called Christopher Reed, which is also called The Song of Lunch. It's a narrative poem Ooh. and it's... A bloke who works in publishing is going to have lunch with a woman who was his lover, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and she left him for somebody else who she's still with who lives in Paris and then they're just meeting to have lunch in a restaurant that they used to go to together 20 years ago. And so it's a fair whack of it is Rickman's internal monologue. I love that. Oh, I know. So, and because it's poetry, it's, it's written, you know, very deliciously and then it kind of unfold. It, it unfolds over the course of the lunch. I really enjoyed it. And it made me want to go and get the poem to read, which I haven't done yet, but I have ordered it on Ooh. Booktopia. It was it was very good. But those two, I mean, I saw a film years and years ago called Judas Kiss in the nineteen nineties. Oh, yeah. mm. I've never been able to f- track it down on any streaming service mm. ever again. A young chatters ahoy, <laughs> chatters ahoy, fly my beauties. <laughs> <laughs> someone anyway, will like uh, someone will drop a beta like tape to you. I'm looking. It's not. Has hasn't started in Australia. It's only been on preview, but I'm looking forward to seeing that new Emma Thompson film oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Something, something about Leo Grande. Did she show up to the... Yeah, like, she's been yeah. in Australia. She believes yeah. in the film so much she's been touring. In Amazing. fact, my friend Amanda Keller interviewed her on her radio show and I was like, oh, I'm so envious. She's on my wish list. And Amanda said she was just everything you'd hope. She was oh, just a God. peach. That's a relief to know. Yes. Anyway. Um, can I quickly just say two yes. quick books that I've read? Yes. Um, because I have been reading. It's not all been lowbrow. Although, uh, so I read a crime book. Yeah. Very unlike me. Yes. Set in Sydney. It's called Black River and it's by a first-time novelist called Matt Spencer, Matthew Spencer. You know crime's not my thing, but I really got into it. Yeah, it's on my bedside table. Right. Well, crack into it because so it's got like, you know, it's about private schools. It's about this big private school that's sort of in Parramatta. Like it's not like it's an anonymized one. Right. um, And there's this sort of serial killer working the river sort of not far from there. And it's like, you know, it's like dead girls as usual, which, you know. (laughs) But it's like there's a bit of a sort of religious kind of iconography thing to it. And then the great thing is the detective, Riley, is this like woman, like they're all kind of like slight drinking problem, you know, dark past, you know, workaholic. She's great, this character. And there's also a, a journo who's hardened and, you know, oh. a bit a bit stalled in his career that, you know, gets stuck into this investigating this thing. Anyway, it's very twisty, crunchy and very, it's like, it's well written, like it's written by a person who really knows how to write. So, uh, um, yeah. You you mentioning a um, male writer writing a female lead yeah. reminded me of Salman Rushdie, um, which was just such an incredibly depressing and distressing turn of events just because he's been big on pushing back against stuff about that you can only write from yeah. your own personal lived experience. Um, and he thinks, as I agree with that, that's a very slippery slope. Anyway, it's just tragic that... I know, couldn't... That When that news came up, I just... I thought it felt like it just a not a joke, just a terrible dream. Like what a 
shocking thing to happen. There was an excellent piece written by Barry Weiss, who writes now for Substack. She spit the New York yeah, Times, yeah. and it was about you know people talk about words of violence. No, violence is violence. Yeah, and yeah, that was just absolutely shocking. It was really interesting. Did you read that piece? Yeah, I did. Re- yeah. Very interesting too, where she was talking about bookshops in the yeah. 90s and stocking the satanic verses and how they actually had to make a, you know, ser- a decision that was seriously about them being yep. at risk. And she was yep. talking about a bookshop in New York that got bombed. Yep. And the owner was saying, oh, well, it's all very good for Martin Amos and Salman Rushdie and Christopher Hitchens and all these dudes who live in, you know, if they're in New York, they're in big high-rise apartments. Yeah. They're not the people on the front line having to sell the book. Yeah. But he, he put it to his staff, are we going to keep carrying this yeah. book or not? And the staff unanimously voted yes because of the belief I up in a bit free when speech. I read that, um, when I read that part of that article, yeah, yeah, it was kind of incredible. These days, where publishers, you know, will refuse to publish someone because yeah. they don't hold the um, right views. Actually, can I um, read you a little quote that I just screenshotted? Someone put it in the chat ten group the other day on a post I put in. And it was I must read the whole thing. It's um, from George Orwell, "The Freedom of the Press," um, and the quote is. At any given moment, there is an orthodoxy, a body of ideas which it is assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. It is not exactly forbidden to say this, that or the other, but it is not done to say it. Anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds himself silenced with surprising effectiveness. Mm. Very interesting. Anyway, let's hope he makes a full recovery. Absolutely. And I'm going to mention one more book that I've read. I know that we're past the half hour, but <laughs> hey, you're not that lady anymore. Um, no, you'll always be that lady. Um, been reading Yvonne Weldon's oh, first yes. novel, I love 67 Days. Yeah. And so I don't know how this lady gets uh, a chance to write a novel. Like yes. she's local government, she's um, Aboriginal Land Council, she seems to be everywhere and she's pooped out a novel. So well done, um, Yvonne. Anyway, it's a love story. Like it's a love story set around Redford and it's this girl who's kind of, you know, a bit lost in her life and she's studying but she's thinking about like, you know, she's she's got some trauma that's happened to her in her past that she sort of can't quite get away from because it's in her community. She falls in love with this amazing guy and look, I haven't finished it yet but like she and this fella are basically going around, touring around and meeting all of her family and her extended family and you can tell that something I don't know. There's going to be something. Something terrible is going to happen. But like, the beauty of this novel is actually like, the love story is lovely, but also it's a love story about family, like this family structure, and it just made me think about you know family relationships that are interrupted, which and you know for First Nations people are often about removal from parents and family. It's just such a like. Of course, it's a rupture, but reading this book kind of really reinforces the tearing nature of that rupture like it's it's the story is about the love story but more deeply i think it's about love of family anyway it's Good. yeah i'm um i'm not finished so i'll let you know when the terrible thing happens as i'm sure it's about to. <laughs> all right see you tits all right good night Wait, 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 wait. Oh, can't say goodbye. We had one job to do in this podcast, and that was to tell people about the Brisbane live stream, which is like this weekend now. Is it Friday night? It's Saturday night. Saturday. Friday night. No, it's Friday night. Oh, it's Friday night. That's Sorry. Oh, my God. Tool. Friday. It's oh my Friday God. night. It's this so, Friday night. It is sold out, but 
we're doing that thing where we do a live webcast. So details on the website. You can buy a ticket to uh, just join us online, which means you don't even have to, you know, put shoes on or pants on or anything on at all, if you like. Just switch your camera off and... Uh, Guess what this sound is? Me getting my keys out of the bag so she'll wow. stop speaking. Oh, amazing. <laughs> you are brutal. Brisbane live stream. Everyone who Get watches them loves them. So, yeah, great. See, right. oh, that's my phone thing. See ya. It's this just stupid thing.